we know most of the health conditions people suffer today is not because you know they are biologically not strong or whatever it is it's because of the social system we have we found that actually the prevalence which is like the, the cases of COVID in black community is 156% higher among black people than in white community. Where really government has failed terribly in terms of policy is because it's all about value for money. Minority groups, particularly people from, from racial minority groups and culturally diverse communities, you are seen as, you know, not value for money, which is terrible. In the past two years of living with COVID-19, who have you been most worried for? The pandemic has taken a huge toll right across the world and the impacts have looked very different for different communities, even here in Australia. In 2020, Sikh University public health researcher Dr William Moody set out to establish how different those impacts were across the Western world and his findings showed culturally diverse people carried a far greater risk of contracting COVID-19. This idea of this is a very small community, probably uh, we need to focus on the bigger uh, communities. It's not going to make Australia a safe community because as long as any of us is at risk, Australian society is still at risk. And I think the governments actually need to work better to engage communities, to understand the complexity, even within single communities, so that they can support uh, those communities better. That's William speaking on a Facebook Live and sharing his public health insight for a community briefing coordinated by the South Sudanese Australian Academic Society. On this episode of CQ University's Impact Research Podcast, William explains the findings of his global study that COVID-19 cases in Black, Hispanic and other minority racial groups were hugely disproportionate to infection rates in white communities. The findings have been published in the Global Health Journal, and next year William will present them to the summit of the European Society of Medicine. William also explains what it's going to take to protect these vulnerable groups and the social factors that public health policymakers shouldn't be ignoring. In the spirit of reconciliation, CQ University recognises this episode was recorded and produced on the traditional lands of the Gimoy, Wellaburra, Yindinji and Yiranganji people in Cairns and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. My name is William Mude and I'm a public health lecturer at CQ University. I've just started here in Cairns in March this year. I moved down from Sydney uh, where I was teaching in the master's program. Regarding my background really in terms of education, uh, yet I've you know, moved a little quite a bit because I started in pharmaceuticals, which I really enjoyed, and then decided to move to public health. And my master's was in public health and my PhD in public health. And I've worked in public health here in Australia for about 10 years now in disease surveillance investigation. And you research in public health as well. How long has research been a part of your work in public health and in academia? So, so really, uh, most of my research in public health has just started actually from CQU per se after my PhD. And that's because when I was doing my PhD, I was actually working full time and also doing my PhD full time. And I didn't have time to publish, but I was able to write my paper. Uh, so when I lucky and, uh, you know, I was very lucky enough after I graduated, I got a job uh, because of my industry experience and also my interests in public health generally. So I got a job 
and started teaching. And that's when I really picked up my, my research in public health. And, and that has been really part of me. 45% of my hours is actually going into research at CKU. Okay, so you're obviously spending a lot of time on it and it sounds like that's a real passion for you as well. What prompted you to look at how COVID-19 was impacting different parts of Australian society and how it especially it impacted different racial groups differently? Uh, look, I think that's an, that's an interesting question. And what has really motivated me is the understanding of social determinants of health. And so really those social determinants of health, I believe that, you know, uh, we get sick not because we suffer some kind of uh, a physiological problem, but because we actually suffer social problems. And some of those social problems could be things like employment, could be things like housing, discrimination, racism, and social disadvantages, really, lack of social networks, people can actually support you to rise above your challenge in life. And so the evidence that we have actually, people who actually work in public health and people who actually research in public health are aware of this. They know that most of the illnesses and, and health conditions that people face today is really can be linked back to social determinants of health. And because we know only like, 10% of medicine actually address our social problems in the, in the world today. Most of our problems are actually based on social determinants of health and how we are treated in the society. So we have seen the issues in Melbourne when the COVID-19 uh, outbreak in, social, in, in public housing in, in, in Melbourne and how, you know, most of the people who live there are actually people from racial minority backgrounds. And, and the same thing in the US and there are studies coming from UK. And I really asked myself, is there, you know, is this really something that's made up or actually if I pull this research together, I will also see the same trends. And I think that's what really decided, really motivated me to actually go into a big meta-analysis and systematic literature review on these issues and really trying to understand if what we are seeing is really actually the truth. Okay. And look, it's a global pandemic we've been living through for gosh, nearly two years now. Um, and yeah, I guess a lot of people would perceive that as, you know, a health thing, right, rather than a social thing. But you've really gone in and looked big scale at the, the social considerations here. So what did you actually find? Yeah. So, you know, we study, we actually compare three different groups, uh, white, which is a predominantly uh, majority racial groups in Western countries, and black, which is obviously minority groups, but they're visible, and, and Hispanics, because also, because also, also they're very visible minority groups in the US. And then we group the others groups like indigenous communities, Asians, and other, other racial groups into other groups. So we had like four different groups. Now, now in those four different groups, one is white, black, Hispanics, and others. And we found that actually the prevalence, which is like the, the cases of COVID in black community is 156% higher among black people than in white community, 154% higher in Hispanic communities than in white community, and 104% higher in other racial groups. Now, if we go to hospitalization, really the question is, so who, which, which, you know, who are the people who are really most hospitalized? And we see a similar trend. Black people are 153 times higher, actually, uh, than actually white people in experiencing hospitalization from COVID, 78% higher and 100, uh, for Hispanics and 51% higher for the other racial group. And then what about death? Who are the people dying from COVID? 
And we look also, uh, we say that the rate of black people are actually dying compared to white is 105% higher. And for Hispanic is, is uh, 15% higher. And for the other racial group is like 25% higher. So, so really we can see clearly that there is a kind of, you know, the racial uh, uh, groups that we, you know, see, you know, death patterns, hospitalization and cases, clearly that, it's very disproportionate for people from racial and minority backgrounds in Western countries. So that's really what our study found. And you say Western countries, which countries did this study take in? So Western countries, we consider countries like Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada, US, UK, and most part of Europe. And, and, and also, actually, we consider also a study from Brazil, because Brazil is also racially diverse, and a lot of black community there, a lot of white people, they also have the same kind of demographic characteristics when it comes to racial groups like US. And unfortunately, in Australia, this is something that I think uh, frustrating, really, from a research point of view. We really don't have data uh, that is aggregated based on racial groups. And, and, and as a result of that, we were not able to find any research from Australia. And I think this is something that uh, is lacking and is very concerning from a research point of view. That, that is surprising and, yeah, like you say, frustrating. And, and those big numbers of the, the increased likelihood for different racial groups must feel very frustrating. Were you surprised by those, the size of those numbers? No, uh, I was not actually surprised. And because this, again, something that is well known in public health and people researching these areas. And again, as I did explain before, we know most of the health condition we people suffer today is not because, you know, they are biologically not strong or whatever it is. It's because of the social system we have. These are the things that actually affects people in, in, in a society. These are the things that makes us sick. Now, and really COVID was really kind of the final nail really on the top. What people have been talking throughout these years has fallen in deaf years. Now, COVID is again coming here showing that, look, this is really what's happening. Now, what should we do? What should government do? And what should uh, public health officers do? What should policymakers do in addressing, you know, uh, social determinants of health, in addressing social inequalities, access to resources and power and things like that? So interesting that COVID has proven what's been known in that circle of public health for so long. But do you see hope that findings like yours might actually improve systems and what would you like to see as the outcomes for how COVID changes the way we build our societies and deliver public health? Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting question and I think it's given an opportunity for government to actually see where actually public health priorities would lie. It's, it's not about building big hospitals, it's not about, you know, buying big equipment where they invest and that's good. It's good. We have very good hospital with good uh, facilities and that, that's good. But we also don't need to neglect the social aspect, the, social, the things that actually make us stronger. And when you look at the trend in Melbourne and Sydney, most of the COVID situations are actually in, in predominantly uh, multicultural communities. And I think that's the impact of research like this, is to actually make government and policy makers to think that, look, uh, there are actually certain part of the population who may not be minority, that these services may not be actually sufficient for them. And it actually makes government to questions, you know, health in all policies. 
whether in employment, in everything that they do, they need to ask, is this actual service is going to address the needs of people who are minority in our community? And who are these people? We need to identify them. How can we engage with them? How can we actually provide for them in a way that is culturally acceptable and, and, and appropriate for these communities? Were you personally, William, involved in that kind of engagement and education through the last two years as COVID started to spread and as you personally were seeing those those communities particularly hard affected by COVID? I look, I think I've 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 actually been doing a lot of advocacy in the community and and particularly, you know, uh uh my community where I come from, I'm from South Sudan. And and so a lot of our people have suffered years of war and and unimaginable suffering. So really uh I think the, the responsibility really fell on us. People who are very fortunate enough to have access to education, to be able to read and write, uh, leave alone even completing a degree, just ability to be able to read and write. So we felt it was our responsibility to actually educate our people. And uh, people set up a lot of forums in the community. And me personally, I've spoken on so many community radios. Probably every Saturday evening, I'm speaking on few that are actually targeting our community. Could be even like, some community leaders organizing social media on their Facebook Live, and they invite, they invite me to speak on it. Because my concern was really, we are going to see more adverse impacts in, in multicultural community in Australia. And, and where I felt it was my role as a public health officer really to, uh, to educate and, and, and give them the right knowledge about this uh, virus and how they can protect themselves and their families. Completely, yeah. And look, that's such important work to do, but at the same time, it must be frustrating to be doing it knowing that you're filling a gap in the services that should be provided by government and that this is covering shortfall. Are there examples over the pandemic um, of where you've seen just public policy completely fail communities that were already disadvantaged in combating COVID? Yeah, I think I think I just want to track back a little bit with that comment that you did point that I was filling a gap, and that's right. And because, again, you know, uh, all of these things that are done by communities, especially minority communities, are services that are done. You know, there's no government assistance whatsoever, and there is no uh, government. Uh, organization saying, you know, we need to target this population, find out, okay, who are the people with knowledge in this community who could actually be trusted and, and, and we could actually use them to actually engage their communities in a way that they could actually empower the communities. This is, this is, has, has been absolutely something that's voluntarily done by our community because if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it for us and it's going to be, uh, our community that's actually going to be impacted. So, so, so yeah, so there was no resources or anything. There was no engagement from the government. And it just felt uh, a policy and, and unfortunately uh, our government officers and policy makers make decisions. They, they make decisions based on numbers, the statistics, who is who and, and where, you know, value for money. Unfortunately, that's a terrible word to use, but that's unfortunately that's what they use value for money. We're gonna give money where you know we're gonna realize much uh, value in terms of our impact. But unfortunately, you know, even a life lost is a loss. You know, it's a human life loss. So really, 
in terms of responding to smaller communities, actually, it's those smaller communities that actually suffer the most because mm. they don't have the network that's required where they can get information from. They don't have access to resources and information and even like TV, leave, leave alone, you know, having even a mobile phone with a pop-up uh, news coming that, you know, COVID, COVID is blah, blah, blah. There's nothing whatsoever. And unfortunately, this value for money has been actually a terrible disaster for minority community, for, for smaller communities like ours, where people just felt like they were left alone. If, if they don't do something, it's, it's going to fall upon them. And I think that's where really government has failed terribly in terms of policy is because it's all about value for money. That means minority groups, particularly people from, from racial minority groups and cultural diverse communities really suffered because you are seen as, you know, not value for money, which is terrible. Yeah, that is just heartbreaking to think about in those terms. And, and yeah, like you say, very real impacts in terms of life and death. I wonder how, as we move out of the pandemic and hopefully into endemic, where would you like to see the first changes made in how we protect vulnerable people in our communities? Look, I think one thing, first and foremost, is people really need to understand, you know, the history of public health and protecting vulnerable community. We need to think of really the margins of public health from John Snow in, in London in around 1800s. And how that much? It's actually to actually protect communities, vulnerable communities, let's say even all communities from uh, diseases like COVID and other conditions. We'll need to think, ask ourselves, why are these people disproportionately actually affected in this community in, in, with, with, with diseases? Leave alone just single diseases, is diseases across the board. Why are these people disproportionately affected? And really it goes back to how systemic system has failed this group. And that systemic system could be maybe opportunity for women, accessing education, accessing resources, having access to good quality housing, and, and, and you know, retraining and providing people with uh, opportunities that actually make them feel that, you know, they, 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 they are part of a community and a society. And I think what public health actually need to do is we need to focus on addressing social determinants of health in our community. A lot of people, and in Australia particularly, and many other countries, because a lot of people suffer disadvantages and 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 uh, and this uh, disproportionately high burden of health condition. It's because of the social determinants of health. The system we have in place, we, we do say that if you want somebody to eat fish, don't give them fish teach them how to actually feed themselves, give them a hook and a fishing rod, and then teach them, sit with them a few times, and then you can leave them, they can feed themselves. That is actually community empowerment, uh, capacity building. And those are the kind of things I think people need to focus on actually developing culturally and linguistically diverse communities in a way that people can actually, you know, have access to those things that empowers them to be independent as opposed to, you know, depending in government housing, uh, you know, centering, whatever it is, because people can't get a job, people, there's no retraining program. And, and this is the thing I think people need to address in this, in the community. It does sound like, yeah, preventative healthcare comes down to fixing society first, which must feel like more of a priority than ever following the pandemic. I guess that then leads to, well, the research that you do, and we've been talking about a, a paper that's looked at 
the global situation in relation to COVID-19, but I know you also do research that's very much connected with communities. Um, what's the impact of your research for the communities you work with? Is it trying to change policy or are there more direct impacts as well? Look, I think, I think both ways. Uh, most of the communities that I work with are, again, very small communities that probably in the eyes of a policymaker in the context of, you know, in the eyes of a policymaker who is driven by, you know, value for money may not saying, you know, this is not an important community and I'm not going to put my money there. But these communities that I work with, uh, these are very small communities, are pretty much really, you know, communities that live at the fringes of society, if I can say. By society, I mean like mainstream uh, white Australian <laughs> uh, society, and which is, you know, they are they're very small communities and, and, and unfortunately the voices are not heard. And nobody even knows what's happening in their community, in those smaller communities, in terms of uh, burden of diseases, in terms of living conditions and challenges in in social life and all that. So really, my the impact of my research has been really to to bring the the voices of those communities into the public health discourse and into issues, discussing issues that affects you know. Uh, uh, people's life. And, and again, because, you know, uh, policies are made on evidence and evidence, evidence and, those, and those policies that are made on evidence become actually uh, implemented and then they actually affect both, you know, all life, regardless of whether you're a minority or you, you are not. Now, now, really, I guess my work is really trying to fill that small gap of that community that's actually neglected in mainstream research, public health research, that that this community that if we are actually also making policies based on uh, evidence that that is this is also going in that community and we need to consider these uh, issues also in our policies because then there's no one size fits all policy but we must we must we must judge and be careful that the policies we make are not going to create more disadvantages uh, for community that are already suffering uh, from systemic uh, disadvantages and and again, my research tried to bring this community together, together in a way that, you know, empowering them to actually talk about their issues. Because if, if we don't actually engage them in talking about their issues, nobody's going to know really what's happening there. And I think that's really the importance of my research. And really, I think my work in this group, and particularly also with my community, is really trying to also... Uh, again, set lights into some of the health issues that may not be actually priority health issues in Australia. For example, if we talk of uh, hepatitis B uh, in Australia, now hepatitis B in Australia has never actually had a uh, uh, national strategy until like 2010. And, and the reason why it even got to that is because there was actually a lot of uh, a uh, few advocates, research uh, people who have been doing work in that area have uh, uh, been actually advocating for government to actually have hepatitis B national strategy. And because a lot of people coming from refugees background, uh, particularly uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and people from, uh, from China and some Asian Pacific, they have a very high prevalence of hepatitis B. And most of those people actually have get those infections during birth. And the same thing with Sub-Saharan Africa. For example, Texas, Sudan, a country where I was born. Now, we have a prevalence of 26%, actually. And it's the highest in the world. And South Sudanese community in Australia are one of the largest refugees communities. 
here in Australia. And, you know, the services are all disjointed and there is no knowledge. There's even lack of knowledge about this. By the time you realize someone has hepatitis B, is when they already have liver cancer and they're dying and the community is asked to actually make contribution, to contribute money for burial. And so these are the kind of things that I think my research is, is playing an important role in is that, you know, a health issue may not be a priority. I'm glad now Australia has hepatitis B as a priority health issues, and it's now in its third national uh, uh, national plan strategy, uh, which is a good thing. But I think, you know, works need to be done with those smaller communities. And I think it's my work like this that actually uh, empowers this small community and makes, you know, bring the issues to the government attention and to make sure that services in those areas continue. We must continue doing work in this space. And, and also we need to keep advo- advocating because there's so much work to be done from, from bloodborne viruses to cardiovascular diseases to other chronic conditions that are actually heavily uh, disproportionately actually affecting these communities. And now, you know, even clinicians are beginning, beginning to realize that really the next clinical practice is not going to be response to acute treatment. It's going to be treating chronic conditions chronic conditions that for us actually to be able to respond to that, we need to actually understand what is happening in this minority group because these are the population that will actually be seeing doctors more because obviously because of the disadvantages, the experience, racism, discrimination, and unemployment, whatever it is that actually make people get sick. That's Sikh University public health lecturer and researcher, Dr. William Mude. As you can hear, he is passionate about protecting the health of our whole community by understanding the social issues driving vulnerability. You can find a link to William's COVID-19 research in the show notes. Next week on Impact, it's into the startup world and closing the gender gap for entrepreneurs. There has been a growing momentum in the entrepreneurship space. And what I uncovered was Despite the interest in all this entrepreneurial activity worldwide, majority of new businesses are started by men rather than women. Look for that episode with Dr. Vanita Yadav next Monday and make sure you're following CQ University podcasts wherever you listen to get our latest episode every week. Thanks for listening to Impact Research Podcast from CQ University, where research makes real impact.